is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Wednesday, November 16th, 2022. And today will be better than yesterday. I'm Buster, only working from my home in Montana. Sarah Abbott is working from the Sarah Abbott Studio in Bristol, Connecticut. And Taylor Schwink is joining us from the Schwink Studios in the foothill of Connecticut. And Taylor, before we got started, I noticed your voice is really hoarse. What's that about? Well, Buster, the Reverend made his return this past weekend for a wedding for my buddy uh, Dan Dirks and his beautiful wife, Jenny, down in uh, Southern Maryland. They they requested the Reverend services. I happily obliged, um, but I think I, I practiced how a little many, too much. How many mo- weddings have you done now? That's my second wedding, so... I mean, the number of people that that have come up to me and are like, oh, you should start a side business. Like, I'm like, "Mm, it's not a bad idea. It's not too hard. But yeah, I practiced a little hard. I played extra hard when I was done. Um, You know, a lot of nerves. I will say I did lose my place for about 20 seconds. Uh, Didn't number the pages. So it was like, you know, shaky hand panic for me. Everyone said my voice was fine. And the groom, as I was fumbling with my papers, leaned over and whispered, this is awesome. (laughs) So everyone enjoyed it. And it was a a nice weekend. So and and tell me that was it the longest 20 seconds of your life. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. One of the groomsmen was like, your hands were shaking like crazy, but your voice was not. And I was like, okay, that's that. Hopefully that's the reps on baseball tonight coming through. So. Um, Where'd you lose your place? You know what happened, Buster? Okay, a couple things. So I printed these pages out um, like as I was leaving. It's chaos in my house. I have a new puppy. So I, I wasn't really paying mind to these papers coming out, but they were collated. And I didn't really know that until like, you know, I was practicing before and I looked at them. And then the bride and the groom gave me their little vow books. And I didn't really have anywhere to put them. So I had them like rested underneath the papers so there were there was an extra variable thrown in there right at the end so that threw me off a little bit i'll know better for okay next time. sarah i think you backed me up i think that was the first official as a new puppy owner uh taylor using the my dog ate my homework excuse because you notice how he threw the dog in there it's like feeding the chaos <laughs> yeah you kind of threw dolly under the bus there <laughs> it's okay she deserves it she's she's being a good girl right now but she was very bad when we came to get her so she yeah, deserves you'll, you'll find out like dogs are really handy when it comes to excuses because they mm-hmm. can't correct the record right yeah right? yeah she's she they, cannot speak on the podcast here it go well uh congratulations on working your way through i'm i'm sure that that uh that was unnerving and and then when you got done you were incredibly relieved and had a great time and it's cool that your your friend uh let you off the hook a little bit in the middle of it that's really neat all right the rookie of the year voting went down as expected on monday julio rodriguez won in the american league here's what it sounded like Without further ado, it's my pleasure to announce the 2022 American League Rookie of the Year Award winner is Julio Elite Rodriguez of the Seattle Mariners. Uh, Yeah, that's what it sounded like on the Major League Baseball Network. Michael Harris II of the Atlanta Braves won in the National League. Uh, In the National League, his teammate Spencer Strider, as expected, finished second. Had eight first place votes. Uh, and Adley Rutschman finished second in the American League. And Taylor, you as an Orioles fan, this is important. Because he finished second, he's awarded a full year of service time. Now, for Rodriguez, Harris, Spencer Strider, it really doesn't matter because all those guys have signed to a long term deal. So we'll see if the Orioles step up and pay Rutschman, right? They, I mean, he's now moved along a full year of service time. 
first of all, they need to. But that sound you're hearing right now is Michael Elias trashing his office because he lost a whole year of service time on him. Well, I don't, I don't think it was that bad. But, <laughs> it, it, uh, you know, as I've said before, there's a chance that Rutschman was one of the top 10 catchers in baseball in 2021. Uh, the Cubs released Jason Hayward, as expected. Since we did a, a pod last week, the Astros signed Dusty Baker to a one-year deal, but they parted ways with general manager James Click, who had been offered a one-year extension. We're going to be talking about that with Alan Gonzalez coming up. Some of the signings, relievers are getting paid. Edwin Diaz, five years and $102 million, although there's so much deferred money in this deal that the present-day dollar valuation is for markedly less. I'm guessing somewhere in the range of 85 to $90 million or so. Rafael Montero signed with the Astros three years and $34 million. Clayton Kershaw had an agreement with the Dodgers similar to last year's uh, one year and about $17 million. And Taylor, I'm looking forward to this. Beyond the conversations with Alvin, with Sarah Langs, with Paul Hemikides, we're going to be talking with Theo Epstein, the former head of baseball ops for the Boston Red Sox and for the Chicago Cubs. He's now a consultant for Major League Baseball on on-field matters, and he's going to be talking to us about the impact of the new rules. Got us some stories from inside the room uh, when Theo gave his presentation last week to all the general managers about what the product is going to look like. It's pretty cool. What else you got? Buster, basketball season is abound. We've got many offerings over here at ESPN Podcast. The Low Post with Zach Lowe twice a week. You can listen to that wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Brian Windhorse and the Hoop Collective, they're three times a week. You can listen to them as a podcast. Also watch them on YouTube. The CJ McCollum Show is starring New Orleans Pelican star CJ McCollum, uh, you know, discussing storylines inside the locker room on the court. And the VC Show with Vince Carter. So great lineup right there. You can listen to all those podcasts wherever you're listening to this show right now. And uh, Windhorse, McCollum, and VC all on YouTube. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus, it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting Preventive. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Theo Epstein was formerly the head of the baseball operations for the Boston Red Sox and the Chicago Cubs. And he's now a consultant for Major League Baseball on on-field matters. And Theo, that means lately administering some of the changes that we're going to see on the field next year. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great. So tell me sort of as you anticipate, because you you went through the hard work uh, that was involved in in talking about these and 
fielding feedback and, and looking at some of these changes in the minor leagues. Tell me what you're looking forward to in 2023. Uh, you know, honestly, I'm, I'm looking forward to the impact of the pitch timer once we get through the initial adjustment period um, for, for, for the players and, and, and just the result of the pitch timer, which I think if, if, if the minor leagues are a good example, we're hardly going to notice the pitch timer and we're just going to be left with a great um, rhythm to the game, flow to the game, great pace and improved overall product that fans and players alike alike will enjoy even more than they currently do. So now it's, it's going to take a little bit of an adjustment, you know, in the minor leagues on, on average, it took you know one to three weeks uh, for players to really adjust. And, and that might be a little bit longer in the big leagues, but once we get there, I think it's, we're going to be left with all the things we love about the game and we're going to be left without a lot of dead time and a lot of waiting around. And we're going to get, uh, you know, maybe an even better product in terms of, you know, more strikes being thrown, a little bit higher batting average, more balls in play, more action, more running game um, without, without the waiting around and save 25 minutes uh, a night on average. So I'm really excited about the pitch timer and bringing back that great pace that we all experienced a couple of decades ago. You touched on it, the impact of the pitch clock uh, that you witness in the minor leagues. Um, besides the the time-shaved-off games, what else did you see? Yeah, well, again, the time-shaved, but the way it manifests is just with pace and, and some more action. You know, in, in the big leagues right now, you have to wait around four minutes uh, on average just to get a single ball in play, and, that, and that's in large part due uh, to just the dead time of – you know, hitters stepping out of the box, pitchers walking around the mound, and, and of course the increased strikeout rate. So the pace itself is a lot better. You know, pitchers are just all business, and, and, and hitters aren't stepping out of the box. And then, and then you know, improvements on on the style of play. So uh, perhaps because pitchers are are working at such a, a rapid rate, uh, they're locked in and, and throwing more strikes. Uh, Hitters are a little bit more aggressive and, and so putting the ball in play a little bit more. Uh, batting average was a little bit higher. Uh, defense was a little bit better, probably because, you know, big leaguers say all the time it's a lot easier to play defense with behind a Mark Burley type or someone who's working quickly than it is someone who takes a long time between pitches. So just a better overall style of play wrapped into, a, you know, um, a tighter package with better pace. So um, really, really excited to see those impacts at the big league level. And then, you know, also it just reduces the recovery time um, between pitches. So as, as a result, perhaps there would be a little bit less of this phenomenon where um, every pitch is a max effort, max out, you know, full velo, as hard as you can throw, as much as you can spin at every pitch. And anything we can do to, to nudge, nudge modern pitching back to being a little bit more of an art and a little bit less of a pure power display. I think it's good in the game for the long run. So I think pitchers will be able to safely make that adjustment with the pitch timer and, and um, that'll be welcome as well. Yeah. And I think that definitely happened, especially when teams turn to the bullpens, you know, in the, in the latter half of games, usually, what do you think the impact of the rules against defensive shifts uh, will be? Um, well, look, I think I think left-handed hitters will will benefit. Um, more balls will get through, especially those who, who hit the ball hard and, and and who pull the ball on a consistent basis. And um, but you know, I think that's that's clear. But I think I think um, one overlooked impact of the rule will be just better, more entertaining, more action-packed 
uh, infield defense on display every night. You know, when you, when you have um, a high frequency of extreme defensive shifts, you tend to have um, fielders bunched up together. Um, you tend to have balls hit right at guys. And um, when you're back to a traditional defensive alignment, it, it, puts, a, it puts a little bit more pressure on infielders to, to have a lot of range, to show their athleticism, uh, to cover you know, a, a bigger piece of territory. And I think we'll start seeing um, you know, more athleticism on display, more entertaining infield defense, which, which is great. And actually, when you talk to infielders who've played under the anti-shift restrictions, they strongly prefer it. Without without the shifting, um, because they, they feel they have more room to roam and and you know in general that I like I like the fact that um, you know without extreme shifts players will be a little bit more in the center of the action Play, players will be dictating um, the game a little bit more in other words yeah I think it's great for baseball when a game might be decided on whether your second baseman can range all the way into the hole, dive, leave his feet, feel the ball cleanly pop up and make a throw and get the guy out first in a bang, bang play more so than whether, you know, your front office on that same play in, in a shift world had the perfect algorithm to, to position the third baseman in short right field and, and, and make that play. So putting the players right in the center of the action, um, making decisions, using their instincts, showing their athleticism, dictating the outcome of games. Um, I think it's just a good, it's a win-win for, for baseball. So when these rules were announced, I remember talking with a couple of managers about the impact of the limitations on pickoff throws on, you know, the slightly larger bases. Um, and what I got back from the managers was, boy, that might be one where we're going to have to see a season, maybe two seasons before we fully see the impact. What do you anticipate as someone who's studied it? Yeah, well, I think it'll it'll enhance the running game and it'll it'll slightly shift um, the scales in favor of the base runner. For, uh, you know, instead of the the pitcher and the defense trying to control the running game, and I think that's a that's a good thing. You know, we're uh, we're down to just about one and a third stolen base attempts per game in the big leagues combined between both teams. And that's, that's a significant drop off from, from the days where we had, you know, um, closer to two and a half stolen base attempts per game. And fans love stolen bases and they love, they love the running game as a whole, you know, fans favorite events in the course of a game, doubles, triples, stolen bases, great defensive plays. And all of those are, are, are dipping in frequency and, 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 and largely a generational low. So I think there's no doubt that we'll see, um, you know, combined between the, the pickoff limitation and, and the slightly bigger bases, you're going to see base runners be a little bit more aggressive. So you're going to see stolen base attempts go up. Um, I don't think by uh, an absurd amount, but I think by, you know, a, a not insignificant amount. And I think you're going to see stolen base success rate creep up as well. Uh, and, and so what that does a few things, it, it, it creates more action. Um, it also increases, you know, the value of, of a single or a walk, you know, just by getting on base, the more, the more teams can use, uh, the running game and, and, and put players in, in scoring position that way, the more it enhances the value of, of, of the single and rallies and eliminates the need, you know, all the time for three true come outcome baseball and, and, and home runs being sort of the only way to score as, as, as we've seen, you know, become more and more prominent. So look, I think it'll have an impact. Um, 
<clears throat> excuse me, and and will will it have a dramatic impact that fundamentally changes the game and teams can't control the running game at all and, and, and stolen bases are going crazy? I don't think so. If it if if it creates that, we'll have to adjust. But look, um, you know, uh, John Birdie led, led the big leagues in, in stolen bases with forty one this this past year, and and that's been common. We're seeing we're seeing the league leader in the in the thirties or, or low forties in stolen bases, and if if it means that you know the real fast uh, players, you know the expert base runners, base dealers can start stealing 75, 80 bags as we saw 15, 20 years ago, or heck, 100, 125 the way we saw 30, 40 years ago. I, I think that's a good thing overall for baseball, given fan preferences and how much they they like action on the field. Yeah, I think this generation of players sort of out of the, out of the habit of looking for opportunities to run because teams don't foster that, uh, you know, uh, I think the feedback that they get doesn't foster that. And maybe that'll change. Theo, I know, I mean, one of the, when you served as head of baseball operations for the Cubs, for the Red Sox, you had a reputation being great in terms of talking with players. As you went through this process, what were some, some voices, some, some players you heard from that where they gave you thoughts that really stuck with you? Um, yeah, you know, look, players, I think are, are a lot more open, open to change, um, than maybe they're given credit for, but they just want to be included, which is, which is natural and, and only right. You know, look, players, uh, are the ones closest to the action. Uh, they're the ones who have the greatest consequences, um, with respect to rule changes. And, and frankly, the ones who understand the way the game is played on the field, um, better than anybody. So including them in the process and consulting with them only makes sense. And, I'm really happy that that was able to happen this year. You know, I think one of the great um, uh, developments in the last collective bargaining agreement was the establishment of the joint competition committee that four player representatives on it who are communicating and representing uh, the, 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 the larger body of players overall. And John Stanton and the Mariners did a great job fostering um, really cooperative, collaborative dialogue. So the players' voices were definitely definitely heard, and, and they improved a lot of these rule changes. But you know, one one interesting thing um, to to come out of of player discussions is is um, you know that players players want to see more action too. I mean, pl- players players don't love the downtime. They don't love the standing around. You know, analytics are are an important part of the game, and they've 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 improved player development. It's not just a front office thing. They've improved player development and given players a lot of data and technology to use to get better. And players have taken advantage of that. But when analytics creep a little bit uh, too far onto the field and they're dictating decisions uh, and slowing the game down, whether it's, you know, um, you know, uh, algorithms for, for defensive positioning every, or looking into the, to the dugout every pitch um, on, 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 um, on pitch selection. I, you know, I think in an ideal world, players would love to be able to rely on their instincts a little bit more, rely on their smarts, their baseball IQ, um, and, and, and make some of these on-field decisions. And so hopefully if the, if the, the rule changes uh, go well and we strike the right balance, again, it'll be putting the players a little bit more in the middle of the action. You know, what you just said, it really stuck out to me the day that you announced that you were leaving the Cubs. And and I'm paraphrasing here, but you essentially talked about the way the game had changed. And you said in so many words, you know, I became I feel like I became more part of the problem uh, where where the game's going. When did you start to feel that way? 
Uh, you know, I was able to serve on previous iterations of the competition committee. And right when we were really starting to see some of the impact of the optimizations that have occurred um, across the industry the last 10 or 15 years, front offices and, and driving a lot of them and, and, and you know, um, just pretty, becoming pretty widespread. Things like, you know, the increased strikeout rate and the ball not being pl- in play as much and the prevalence of three true outcomes. And I remember, um, you know, speaking up on those committees and talking about, um, you know, the importance of things like maybe li- uh, uh, limiting the, the, the amount of pitchers on a roster, pitcher roster limits as a way to sort of reduce the, the momentum of modern pitching becoming max effort and all about bat missing instead of, you know, the art of pitching. And it, it was just, I, I recognized that it was more of a full-time job that, you know, everyone on the baseball side um, is, is understandably and justifiably caught up in, in, in doing their job, which is wins and losses and creating optimizations to, to make your players better, help your teams win one more game, score one more run, prevent one more run. And there's not really time um, or, or necessarily interest even in taking a step back and seeing the game from 10,000 feet, seeing it from the fans perspective and understanding like the, the big picture trends and, and, and interventions that we might need to consider to make sure we have the most entertaining possible product for our fans. So when I was, you know, I always sort of think about my career in 10 year chunks. And when I was nearing the end of my time with the Cubs and looking at the next thing, I thought it would be a pivot, an important moment in time uh, in baseball in terms of thinking about the way the game is evolving and, and becoming really intentional uh, about creating the best possible product. In other words, not letting it just evolve organically, but being thoughtful about, you know, Hey, this is a better game when the league hits 265 or 270 instead of 235 or 240. This is a better game when the ball is in play. And this is a better game when pitching is an, is an art, not just uh, all, all about, you know, missing bats. And so I reached out to the commissioner and he was, he was kind enough to you know give me a, a seat at the table and in these discussions and, and, and uh, playing a small role and helping with these experiments and the rule changes. So it was just gradually over time. And I realized, it was really hard to do both. It was hard to focus on winning games and also focus on what's, what's best for, for baseball overall. You know, last one for you, your message to the general managers at the general managers meetings, from what I understand last week was essentially on the lines of what you just talked about, about trying to look at the game uh, from through the fans perspective uh, after, you know, you said that to them and, and in the question and answer afterward, what kind of feedback did you get from that group? Uh, it was great. I mean, look, the, we have an, at, at, in baseball, I think we have an incredible resource in the 30 general managers and, and their staffs and just how, how smart they are and how much they do care about the game and how much time they spend thinking about uh, the way the game is played and, and how to get an advantage. And, you know, 99.9% of the time, as I just mentioned, you know, those efforts are uh, intended to, you know, uh, get a competitive advantage, you know, find a way to score one more run or prevent one more run, get that last win to get you in the postseason, incrementally increase your chances of winning the World Series. But there's a lot of brain power in, in that room. Um, and, and so, you know, I think in, in the role I have now, it just, it just makes a lot of sense to, and obviously I can, I can empathize with, with, that group and the responsibilities that did that job for a long time and understand, you know, um, 
how much you have to think about your team and, 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 and creating those wins on the field. But I just wanted to remind about the big picture and that, you know, the, the, a lot of the rule changes and some of the interventions that uh, may become necessary to make sure we have the most entertaining possible product. There's a, there's a reason behind them, you know, and that we all have an interest players, GMs, ownership, everyone in the game of putting the best possible product on, on the field. And, you know, just the trends in the game now, the way, the way it's evolved and, and yes, you know, people like me have played a role in, in creating that. And um, a lot of it is just the nature of data and technology and the progress that we've seen in this world. Like the, the trends will probably push us uh, in a direction we don't want to go unless we do intervene. And, you know, if you, if you take a step back and think about, you know, 20 years ago, if we were to set out and think about the best version of baseball and how can we put the most entertaining, most joyous version of the game on the field for the fans and for everyone's benefit, there's no way we would have said, Hey, we want a game with a 23% strikeout rate and where the league hits 243 and when there's a ball in play only once every four minutes and doubles, triples and stolen bases are at an all time low or generational low. And, you know, um, we're, we're, we're cramming, you know, third baseman and bat first guys into second base. Cause you can just stick them in a shift and don't have to worry about athleticism or defense. There's no way we, we anyone would have designed it that way. It's just how we've evolved. So I just wanted to, to remind, remind all the GMs that, you know, beyond winning games, we all have an interest in putting the best possible product on the field and that their contributions because they understand the dynamics between batters and pitchers and incentives and disincentives and adaptations and, and, and adjustments to those adaptations. They understand it so well, they can play a really uh, important role and have a critical voice in the way things uh, evolve and that we're not in that we understand how important it is to win, how hard it is to develop players and that these rule changes are not designed to make their lives more difficult, but just put the best possible product on the field every night. And that's something we all have an interest in. Well, I can't wait to see it. I got to tell you, uh, as someone, you know, who is, uh, you know, privately complained about it so much over the last decade and the trends, uh, I can't wait to see the, you know, baseball in 2023. Theo, yeah. thanks for doing this. Yeah, you're welcome. And I think, you know, it's interesting. We're all going to learn a lot in 23, right? No one knows exactly how, how how much more the ball will be in play with the pitch timer, the exact effect of, of the sh- anti-shift rules of the bigger bases. And we're just going to continue to learn, make adjustments as we go and try to try to put the very best version of baseball on the field. Yeah, and I'm with you. I think the players are so talented that they'll, they'll find a way to adapt and adjust and, and pretty quickly. Absolutely. All right, sir. Thanks, Buster. All right, man. Yep. Take care. This is the Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter, producer for MLB.com. Sarah, how you doing? I'm doing great, Foster. How are you? I'm a little bit bitter because I noticed in recent days you have abandoned baseball to some degree <laughs> and you've gone over to the dark side and you're following the NBA and I'm completely kidding. You get to hang out with the Warriors a little bit uh, and I, was, I sent you a text on this. Uh, I heard that Steve Kerr, is a huge baseball fan. From what I understand, he also talked to Steph Curry. Um, tell me about those conversations and how big of a baseball fan are those guys? Oh, my goodness. Well, first of all, I have to give a huge shout-out to AP reporter Jamie McCauley, 
She met my mother and my grandmother at a Giants game in 2019. They stayed in touch, love for baseball and sports and everything else. And unbeknownst to me, my mom let Jamie know that I would be at the Warriors game last week. And she didn't expect anything. She said, hey, she'll be there. You guys have chatted over Twitter. You've never met in person. You should go say hi if you have the time. And of course, Janie, a wonderful, wonderful person who loves to make people so happy, came up with this entire plan. So yes, I got to chat with Steve Kerr. He mentioned he grew up a big Dodgers fan, mentioned all that. And with Steph Curry, I mentioned to Curry the moment where there was a Dodgers game late-ish in the year where he was there and Trace Thompson had a big hit and there was this video that went viral of Steph Curry going right behind the plate to get the perfect video, I assumed to send to Clay or Trace. So I mentioned that to him and how much I loved that moment. Nice. What did uh, Steve Kurt have any questions for you about the Dodgers or had some comments about the Dodgers? Because I told you, I grew up a Dodger fan too. So I think we're probably in the same age range. We didn't quite get enough time to break them down, but I, uh, I would have been ready if he had any questions for sure. All right. Let's play the numbers game. Number three. Number three is 21. So Julio Rodriguez and Michael Harris II became the 24th and 25th players to win Rookie of the Year before turning 22. Now, that's a handful, and that makes sense because rookies are always going to be young. But I thought this was really cool. It was only the third time that both Rookie of the Year winners were under the age of 22 in the same season. And the other times were in 2012 with Mike Trout and Bryce Harper and 1978 with Lou Whitaker and Bob Warner. So even though we often see young players, of course, win Rookie of the Year, having two of them this young in one season is pretty special. Number two. Number two is eight. So I thought this was really fun. Michael Harris II became the eighth player to win Rookie of the Year on the reigning World Series champ. So that's part of what I thought was so incredible about both his candidacy and Spencer Striders. The fact that they were doing this, they were so good and so young on a team that didn't even need that injection of young talent. So the last player to win Rookie of the Year on a reigning World Series champ before Michael Harris last night was Steve Sachs in 1982 on those Dodgers after they had won in 1981. The others were Pat Zachary with the Reds in 1976, Tom Tresh with the Yankees in 62, Frank Howard with the Dodgers in 1960, Tony Kubek in 1957, Bob Grimm in 54, and Gil McDougal in 51. All of those with the Yankees. Number one. Number one is zero. So looking ahead a little bit later in the week, I wanted to talk about the potential American League Cy Young Award winner. 
So we are pretty much expecting, I think, that Justin Verlander will win that one. If he does, he would be the first pitcher ever to win the Cy Young Award after throwing no innings the year before. And I think that's so incredible. That's for any reason, of course, for him. He was coming back from Tommy John's surgery. The previous fewest innings was a total around 17 and two-thirds by Fernando Valenzuela when he won in 1981. He was, of course, the only rookie to win. And so he had debuted the year before and thrown just a handful of innings. But the fact that nobody has ever won this after not pitching the year before is such a testament to what Justin Berlander may officially have done by Wednesday evening. Yeah, an incredible year for him, for sure. Uh, speaking of the Bay Area, Chris Townsend is the host of A's Cast. Uh, he's gotten to know you in in recent years. Here's what he had to say. I remember the first time I heard Sarah on Baseball Tonight, the podcast, and I immediately thought, this is incredible information, great delivery. We've got to have this on our show. And I called my producer, Cody, and said, we've got to find the Sarah Langs and get her on the program. And ever since the first time she has come on, she has become a fan favorite. Uh, I think about the time we had her out on the field right before the playoffs where we do our show. She has meant so much to us. And I think about the professionalism, I think about the research, I think about the numbers, all that stuff is great. But when you get to know Sarah, you get to know the person and you fall in love with the person. So we've been so thankful that we have had her and had all the different research and stuff she's brought to the program, but being able to call her a friend and just to fall in love with her as a person has been far greater than any number she has ever brought in us. And who would, who would have ever thought Cody that she'd become such a really a star in Northern California. Our fan base adores her. I like to think that I was good at finding stuff. And then I met Sarah and started becoming friends with Sarah and she can find literally everything that I can't. She's been invaluable to to our show, to me, to you. Uh, the friendship I built with Sarah over the last few years has been great. Um, we stay in communication. Uh, you know, every week we talk about baseball and stats. So what Sarah has done for me and helping me grow my career in the side of research and becoming friends, you're right. I mean, you can't help but fall in love with the person, how, how much she loves the game of baseball and just loves life. So um, she's been tremendous for us and for our show, and I, I couldn't thank her enough. Sarah, you're in our thoughts, you're in our prayers. We love you. And everybody with A's Cast, A's Cast Live, and all the fan base, we will always be there with you. So, Sarah, speaking of the A's, uh, former A's manager Bob Melvin is among those being considered for National League Rookie of the Year. We're going to find out about the managers of the year. I always find this award to be a little bit weird. Like, there's not a lot of objective information uh, that you can have. It always seems like that you, you know, the person who wins is the the manager of the team that came into the year with the lowest expectations and had the best year. Who do you, uh, who would you pick for manager of the year? First of all, thank you so much to Chris and to Cody. I really, really appreciate the kind words. And I agree with you. It's kind of like the most overachieving, unexpected team. And it's funny because for all of that, the finalists in the National League 
all won 100 games, right? So we have the Dodgers with uh, Dave Robertson, we have Buck Showalter and Brian Snicker. I think in the National League, I'm expecting Snicker to win because of that 10 and a half game deficit that the team overcame. Of course, a huge credit to Michael Harris II, who just won Rookie of the Year. The turnaround really coincided with when he was called up. But I assume overcoming a deficit like that may end up being uh, what voters may have seen. But it's funny because that's also the reigning champ. So the idea that the reigning champs defied expectations doesn't really compute either. In the American <laughs> League, it's it's funny because, you know, I think Terry Francona deserves so much credit for managing that team, of course, bringing the youngest team in baseball to the postseason. That hadn't happened since 1986 with the Mets. And, of course, Scott Service. I mean, you know, the other rookie there, winner playing in, uh, very huge there with them finally making the postseason for the first time since 2001. But I'm sort of expecting the Brandon Hyde will win because nobody saw Taylor's Orioles coming. Nobody saw this happening. And the fact that even though they finished in fourth, place the fact that they're above 500 and competitive down into September I assume that will be the thing but it's so hard because as you said you're sort of trying to weigh who was the biggest surprise and you know a guy like Dave Roberts who managed a team to a ton of wins deserves a lot of credit too but we don't usually see that be the deciding factor in this uh, award. Yeah, I thought Brandon Hyde did a great job. His staff did a great job. And the funny thing with that is, too, is that the reason why the expectations were so low is because the leadership of the team in recent years, in my opinion, wasn't trying to win. <laughs> so so they, they lowered the bar, like the leadership of the team lowered the bar for the team. So there's always a lot of weird factors uh, with the manager of the year. I agree. I think Brandon Hyde's going to win, and that would be really cool. Um, and I think I, uh, I think Buck Showalter would have won if not for the Braves' late comeback. So we'll, yeah. we'll see how that goes. Sarah, thanks for doing this, uh, and I'm glad you came back to baseball. <laughs> glad to be back glad to be back and thank you so much for having me you can now stream the most mlb games on direct tv without a satellite dish yes the clutch hits the strikeouts grand salamis web gems with nothing on your roof so whoever's up there whether it's roofers santa birds old-timey chimney sweeps moody teenagers thrill-seeking raccoons you name it they won't find a satellite dish but you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Buster. Just go to Indeed.com slash Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Jumping into the numbers. This is Hembo Knows on Baseball Tonight. And Hembo is Paul Mbikiti. He's a researcher at ESPN. He's also a honcho on the show Get Up. And this week he is doubling as the agent for Jeff Saturday. Uh, <laughs> Hembo, how are you doing? Uh, no one has a better life than me, Buster. My, my twin girls are like 10 weeks old now. They're starting to like recognize me just a little bit. Like we're, you know, we're playing the game where like I'm like sl- snapping my fingers back and forth as they're moving their eyes, darting back and forth. Like they're starting to become people. It's a crazy, crazy thing. I have to admit, I already do miss baseball. I popped in season one of Ken Burns' baseball documentary yesterday because I already miss it so much. It's a little early in the offseason for that to be happening. But look, my girls are 10 weeks old. It's about time they start hearing about people like Rube Waddell and Nap Lajue and Connie Mack. Like it's never too early to, in- to uh, indoctrinate the young ones. That's for sure. Well, and, and uh, you know, all kidding aside, that's cool, by the way, about your daughters and the fact that they're mm. starting to recognize you. I'm sure oh, you're yeah. quite sorry about that in about 16 or 17 years, <laughs> uh, you know, having raised a daughter myself. Um, I, I, you know, it's interesting because, you know, Jeff Saturday has been a g- big topic of conversation on Get Up. He's someone who was with you. I heard your uh what you said the other day, defending the higher Hembo. I totally agree with you. It's funny. I had this great conversation with my son, Jake, when he heard about the hire, he said, that's stupid that they are to hire him. I'm like, dude, no, you don't get it. Like being a head coach is not about calling the right offensive player, being great at clock management. It can mean a lot more than that. And I think we saw an example of that with Dusty Baker, like with the way that he led the Astros after the sign stealing scandal, you know, through winning the World Series was not another demonstration of that. Uh, you know, I don't think anybody's going to confuse Dusty for being the greatest manager of a bullpen ever. But you know what? He knows people and Jeff knows people. I love that video that uh, of him in the uh, Colts locker room after they won that game the other day. Yeah, it was moving. That's a great comparison that I had not considered. No one is going to confuse Dusty Baker for Kevin Cash or some of the more notable X's and O's managers in baseball. But what he did in that clubhouse post scandal was obviously an extraordinary thing. And what I think we're going to see Jeff Saturday do over the second half of the season is a pretty similar thing. Like there's, there's, there are any number of ways that a head coach or a manager can be really, really effective. And we should also stop pretending like the way that NFL owners hire head coaches is some sort of science. Like there are 32 of those jobs, obviously. And right now 
17 of them are being occupied by someone in their first or second season on the job. NFL owners stink at hiring head coaches. So we should stop pretending that this pipeline that we have created to somehow create these beyond reproach decisions here. I totally with you. And I like the Dusty Baker uh, comp a lot. That's a, that's a really good way of comparing the two. I think Jeff's going to ha- enjoy success there in Indy. And I obviously wish Dusty continued success in Houston. No one deserves it more than that guy. Yeah. There, there are guys who are really good at prepping, uh, you know, game plan, There are others who are really good at identifying talent. And then there's another factor, and it's a good thing this uh, podcast is being taped because I know Taylor can jump in and bleep this out. There's a let's go factor, and that's Mm. what Saturday is really good at. And I felt, you know, to some degree, that's the way Dusty was too, you know? So there's a lot of – yeah, and that's what I was trying to tell Jake, and and I texted him after they won that first game, and I said, see – and I, and I think his uh, his favorite coach, Mike Brabel of the Titans, has a lot of that, too. All right. Mm. Uh, we just got done talking with Theo Epstein. Uh, to me, he's a transformative figure in baseball. At this point, he's really important in terms of helping to transition baseball into these new rules that are going to really substantially change the product that we look on the field. Uh, we see on the field. What do you make of Theo? Buster, I don't think it's a stretch to say that when it's all said and done, that Theo Epstein will be remembered or considered baseball's most influential executive since Branch Rickey. Yes, since Branch Rickey, who obviously is probably the most impactful executive of any kind in any sport. But think about it. I mean, Theo Epstein has already extinguished the curse of the Bambino, the curse of the Billy Goat. And now has sort of become the face of sweeping rules changes that I believe, and I think you believe, and I think a lot of people around the sport believe, are going to transform baseball for the better. And he's still a really, really young man. I mean, every you know, on occasion you'll just see someone come across your favorite sport that just seems to be sort of touched with unique wisdom beyond their years. And he is most definitely one of those people. I could not have handpicked a person uh, sort of better equipped to uh, push baseball in the right direction into the future than Theo Epstein. And I, for one, am thrilled about practically all of the, you know, sweeping changes that Major League Baseball is pushing down the pike. And obviously he is a big reason for all of them. Yeah. And I love the fact that he basically started this conversation when he left the Cubs by saying, you know what, I contributed to the problem and now we have to fix the game because Mm. it definitely has, has gotten to a point where for the next generation of fans, it may not be as watchable. All right. Uh, so the shift is obviously the regulations against the shift are going to be, uh, at the forefront of what happens in baseball next year. What are, you know, from, uh, what you've seen in recent years, the shift popularity and the impact of the sport. Yeah. Here are the, I think most important numbers as it relates to the shift, which is now going to be banned league wide batting average on balls in play last season was 290. That was lowest in a season since 1992. League-wide BABIP among left-handed hitters was 283. That was lowest in any full season since 1989. Much more specifically, and you and I will dig into this a little bit further, lefties owned a BABIP of 219 on ground balls, which was the lowest in any full season over the last 20 years. As it relates to popularity, there were nearly 61,000 shifts employed last season uh, and more than a third of plate appearances. Further, righties were shifted 19.6% of the time, and lefties, 55% of the time front offices have access to all the same numbers that I do and probably way more. I think that you'll see a lot of front offices identify certain players this off season as guys who might really benefit from that. And there are obviously any number of left-handed hitters across the sport that are going to benefit to a large degree, obviously among those that are not free agents, but I think you'll see a big uh, incline in, uh, in that respect. 
Yeah, Hembo, I tweeted out the other day that the feedback I got from agents, from executives uh, at the general manager's meeting last week was left-handed hitters are suddenly really popular in the market. You know, last week when Jack <laughs> Peterson got the qualifying offer uh, from the San Francisco Giants, I think some casual fans are like, what? You know, he's been getting like $8 million, $10 million, and suddenly the Giants offer him a qualifying offer of $19.65 million. That's behind it, right? So mm-hmm. give me three hitters that will benefit from this uh, regulations against the shift. The first is Anthony Rizzo, who we know is a free agent. He had a 216 BABIP last season. That was the third lowest mark in baseball. His career BABIP entering last year was 283. That's a massive delta. More than half of his hits were extra base hits. In other words, there were just no singles to be had. The second is Juan Soto. So there were 126 hitters last season that put at least 350 balls in play. The differential between his batting average and his expected batting average was ninth worst. The same differential when it came to his slugging was sixth worst. And in total, he was the sixth unluckiest hitter in baseball measuring his entire batting line. He was shifted nearly 60% of the time despite his ability to use all fields. And the last buster is Corey Seager. He pulled 123 ground ball outs. That was most in the majors. This is a 245 hitter last year that batted 297 during his Dodgers career. There are any number of hitters that you could say this about. Those three really stood out to me. And there's one other point that I think needs to be made. One thing we can't really control for is the difference in approach that we might see for some left-handed hitters now knowing that more singles are available. Think Cedric Mullins. Think Brian Reynolds. Think Jared Kelnick. These are guys that have had to increase their launch angles because there there aren't enough blades of grass, for lack of a better term, available on that side of the field. I think you're going to see any number of guys with sort of fringe power not shoot for 30 homers anymore, shoot for 15 or 20, reduce that launch angle, and add 15 or 20 hits to that ledger. I think that you'll see any number of players make that concerted effort next season. Those three are just you know kind of top ahead there. Uh, what do you think? Do you agree with that? Yes, 100%. I, I think there are going to be so many ripples from this that we can't even begin at this point to assess them. I, I remember you know talking with a, a, a couple of managers during the course of the season in asking them about the rules, about, you know, three pickoff attempts being a max, et cetera. And, and their feeling was, look, it's way too early uh, to really know exactly how that's going to impact running games. But both of them reached the conclusion it will impact and it will help a lot. And I think that's the way it is with some of the defensive shifts. I I, I think there's a lot to it. And I think it's just going to make for, for games that are going to have more action in less time because of the pitch clock. Uh, look, I mean, they have all the data in the minor leagues that backs up every single word that you just said. And I'll tell you what, if I am Trey Turner's agent, I am copy-pasting that information and sending it to all 32 teams. Because Trey Turner, who went 27 of 30 last year uh, stealing bases, we saw a 9% increase in success rate in the minor leagues. There's no reason why that guy can't steal 40 or 45 bases next year. There's no reason we don't have a 50 stolen base guy next year. I'm not so sure that on balance we're going to see massive spikes league-wide. What we will see is individual players with certain talents take a massive step forward because these rules help them specifically. And that, I think, is the likeliest thing that we should be tracking at the beginning of next season. And again, all of that happening, not in three hours and 15 minutes, but in two hours and 40 minutes. And I think there'll be a lot of people walking away from baseball games next year saying, boy, that was fun. Because there have been too many games in the last, uh, increasingly in the last four or five years where you walk away and say, boy, that was a slog. (laughs) I mean, look, Buster, the, uh, the, the most fundamental thing, like baseball's 
built upon the batted ball. Like the reason back in the day when they're playing over in the Elysian fields, which I can see from where I am in Greeny's office right now, that the pitcher threw it up where their batter wanted it to be hit. Like that's baseball. Baseball is the batted ball. That's the foundation of which the sport is built upon. If we can inject some more into the game, the game is only going to get more exciting. That's the most exciting thing about baseball, when the bat meets the ball. All right. Give me a couple of uh, big award choices and a favorite stat for each of the winners. So my National League Cy Young winner is Sandy Alcantara. Buster, he had 14 starts this year. 14, in which he got 24 outs. No other pitcher had more than six. He had 14. No one else had more than six. My AL Cy Young is Justin Verlander. He allowed an OPS of 497. 497. It's the lowest mark in any full season since Pedro Martinez in 2000, otherwise known as the greatest pitching season of my lifetime. My National League MVP is Paul Goldschmidt. I want you to ask him about this next year. His preparation must be outstanding. His uh, OPS against starting pitchers last year, 1130. 137 points better than any hitter in the National League. He hit 371 against starting pitchers, highest in a full season since Miguel Cabrera in 2013. His pregame prep has to be as good as anybody in the sport. And lastly, of course, my American League MVP is not Shohei Otani. It is Aaron Judge in large part because of how he just carried that lineup in the second half. Here are just incredibly loud numbers to demonstrate how impressive that was. So the league owned an OPS on base plus slugging of 706 after the All-Star break. Aaron Judge after the All-Star break owned a slugging percentage of 785. His slug was 79 points higher than the entire batting line of the sport. And if you look at the same subset of time, his Yankee teammates slashed 223, 292, 360. That was a batting line buster that was equivalent to the Pirates. In the second half of the season, it was Aaron Judge playing on a line, in a lineup with the Pirates. They still won their division. They still made noise. And obviously, he is the single biggest reason why. You mentioned Berlander. I will relate to you that uh, during the World Series, I had a conversation with him, with Jessica Mendoza, in which it's pretty clear, Hembo, he's locking in on 300 wins. <laughs> I told so him Bur- that. Justin Berlander, that. yes. I, mm-hmm, I totally I, agree. I, there's no – look, I'll tell you what. This might surprise you. I would rather sign Justin Verlander to a two, three, four-year deal than Jacob deGrom. There is no obvious reason to me that guy won't pitch into his mid-40s. I think he's going to finish fifth. He's going to pass Burt Blylevin and eventually finish fifth on the all-time strikeout list. And I think, three, I think he will be the last pitcher we ever see to get to 300 wins. All right. Well, that would be fun. And, I, I mean, he's so goal-oriented that, uh, yeah, I, I, there's no doubt that once he gets close, he will absolutely be zoned in and focused and working to make it happen. All right, Hembo, thanks for doing this. Later, friends. Alden Gonzalez covers baseball for ESPN. And, Alden, how you doing? I'm doing great, Buster. How are you doing, man? I'm doing okay. We got news late last night. Yasiel Puig has agreed to plead guilty to a federal charge for lying to law enforcement officials about sports bets. He's agreed to pay a fine of at least $55,000. The crime that uh, he's agreed to plead guilty to uh, carries a maximum sentence of five years in federal prison. Uh, We haven't gotten word yet on exactly uh, how much time he would serve, if he'll serve any time. But Alan, when you heard this, uh, I'm curious about what your reaction was. Just tragic, Buster. It really is. Uh, somebody who lived in L.A. when Yasiel Pui came up and just re- really just dazzled people out here. And just um, it, it, it was just you, you, you stop thinking about just sort of what this means for his baseball future, because I don't know that 
many people were thinking about him making a comeback from Major League Baseball. You just sort of worry about him and just where his life is going. I, I remember a, a few weeks before that, he posted this Twitter thread about his mental health and how he had finally started to get that together and had the proper resources in place. And I was kind of rooting for him. But, you know, the thing with Yasio Puig, and I hate to say it, he's never been able to get out of his own way. And this is just another example of that. Just, and I, I don't know where this is going to go, but this is a very serious problem. And I, I, I it's just, tra- it's just tragic. There's no other way to say it. It's just tragic. Yeah. He's like going to be someone that there's going to be a 30 for 30 on right in like 20 years. And you'll go back and say this amazing time when he broke in with the Dodgers and the thought, you know, the, the incredible skills that he had, the hope that he represented that time, uh, and then it all went away, you know, and, and I, I don't think he'll ever play major league baseball again, uh, you know, uh, for sure. All right. So since, uh, we had a, la- a podcast last, uh, Dusty Baker agreed to a one-year extension with the Houston Astros. Um, and James Click was offered a one-year deal to continue as general manager of the Astros. Uh, but he, and the Astros have parted ways. He clearly was not happy with what Jim Crane offered him. Uh, I'm sure you heard as I did in the summer of 2021 that Jim Crane was not happy with James Click. I think this was fully expected. I, I really believe, based on what I heard on, you know, on both sides, uh, is that this was essentially an oil and water situation, that James was not a good fit with Jim Crane. He was looking for somebody to be more aggressive, more dynamic. Uh, and on from J- from James Click's perspective, his feeling might be, "Hey, we made the World Series the yep. last two years and we won." Yep. But I wasn't surprised when it came down. What about you? Uh, I wasn't either. I was at the GM meetings uh, when uh, James Click showed up, and the Astros a few minutes before he was scheduled to speak to reporters announced a press conference for the following day, not saying what the press conference was for and what an awkward scene in the lobby in this Vegas hotel where James Click says he has no idea. He, has, he doesn't know anything about a press conference. Um, you know what? The, uh, the sentiment I got from executives throughout the sport was good for James Click. Good for James Click because that man just won a world series. When you win a world series, you get a multi-year extension, you get a major raise. That's not what happened for him. He got a one-year extension. That was a slap in the face. It really was. I don't think Jim Crane ever truly trusted him, but I think that trust really eroded in that final year. Uh, from what I heard, it's just that James Click wasn't Jeff Lunau, and Jim Crane did not trust James Click like he did Jeff Lunau. I know that sounds weird because he had ultimately fired um, Jeff Lunau in the wake of the science stealing scandal, but. You know, you when you have people like Jeff Bagwell and Reggie Jackson who don't have um, baseball front office experience who have in some way more say in your transactional stuff than your general manager does, that says something. I think it's also obvious that Jim Crane felt like he had to give him some sort of extension because they won the World Series, and that's the only reason why he gave it to him. So Good for James. Um, I know David Stern squashed those rumors about going back to Houston. Uh, He has to because he's under contract in 2023. So that's at least one element of it. And it's just going to be really interesting to see where the Astros go from here with their general manager. I mean, Jim Crane got very involved in baseball operations decisions in 2022. And so who is he going to hire that he trusts? I would think it's somebody who used to work with the Astros. I don't know who that name is right now. but. 
really it's going to be really interesting. This team is going to be really good next year. They have the infrastructure in place, but now they need a general manager. Yeah, and he's been really involved for a while. You know, in 2017, when they were right at the cusp of making that deal for Verlander, um, I remember, you know, at that time, hearing about how Jeff had had gotten real close to a deal and it was Jim Crane stepping in and saying, get it done, in so many words. Um, agents have told me, you know, in 2018, 2019, that if you wanted something done, that in some ways, Jim was the guy that you wanted to contact. You know, he was the guy who would talk about financial parameters and he was was more aggressive. And so he's been involved in baseball ops talks for a long time. Uh, and so, I, I, as I say, I was not surprised that this happened. I'm a little bit surprised about Dusty and maybe that's because I've known him a long time and, you know, want good things to happen for him. And part of me was hoping that he would walk away. You know, I, I want him to finish on a on a high, but... Hey, it's Dusty's life. He knows what he wants to do. He loves being around players. He loves being around the game. Yeah, and I thought too when the when the Astros clinched their World Series berth and they were in the Bronx, and you saw players chanting for Dusty Baker when they when they beat the Yankees. I thought, oh, this is going to be Dusty Baker's last year. And I, I'm I'm with you, Buster. I really did think that once he won the World Series, he was going to walk away. But he kept saying this towards the end. He said, "When I win one, I want to win a second. Uh, and I think there's something about that lifestyle. I think being Dusty Baker right now is a great thing in your life. I mean, I think he's having a lot of fun. He's managing a really good team. Yep. They won. He's a celebrity everywhere. I think he loves that lifestyle. I don't blame him because what's he going to do? He's approaching his mid seventies and he's going to stop doing this thing. I feel he probably thinks, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Let me keep doing this. And you know, Good for him. I don't I don't hate the one-year extension for him. He's 73 years old. I hate it for James Click because he's 44 and he's got a family he's trying to make himself as GM. And he's got a long career ahead of him. And I thought that that was a slap in the face for him. Not so much for Dusty Baker. Yeah, I feel the same way about Dusty that I do about players who extend their careers. And, and you'll see fans, you see members of the media say, oh, the guy should walk away. You know what? It's their life. It's Dusty's life. Yeah. If he's enjoying it and, and he and he likes the money and he likes the the opportunity to win another World Series and go for it. I, I think just because most of the time we see, you know, players, executives look for that final uh, you know, finish, you know, Derek Jeter walking off after getting that uh, game winning hit at Yankee Stadium, that that uh, that's what we've grown to expect. All right. You as, as you mentioned, you were at the general manager meetings last week. Uh, I mentioned to Paul Ambikides that I heard a lot of feedback about left-handed hitters being the darlings of this offseason uh, in, in the run-up to having baseball without uh, without hit defensive shifts the way we've had in the past. What are some of the trends that you heard about at the meetings? Yeah, that um, I, I went around asking executives uh, about that, just sort of what kind of players are going to take more value now than maybe otherwise would have because of the new rules, that being the shift restrictions, the pitch clock, the bigger bases. I heard some talk about maybe guys who could run taking advantage of the bigger bases and also the restrictions on pickoffs. Um, some about obviously putting the ball in play just because you would think at least maybe ground balls in play have a better chance of sneaking through for hits with the shift restrictions. But I think more than anything else, it's that left-handed pull hitter, the guy that you can't shift extremely with three infielders on one side, um, uh, a shortstop, basically shallow right field. Um, I think those are guys that are going to have more value 
One thing that I was surprised by, Buster, if you remember, the GM meetings took place just a couple of days after the end of the World Series. There was a lot of activity there. There were a lot of agents engaging with a lot of executives about their players. I think there were a lot of trade discussions um, at the GM meetings. We already saw big contracts for a couple of relievers in Edwin Diaz and Rafael Montero. I think teams are going to spend. I am very curious to see if what the Phillies did, which is just show if you could just Get into the dance, you could advance far and you could significantly up your franchise revenue by advancing to the World Series. How teams take that approach, teams that are kind of on the cusp, are they going to spend a little bit more just to get the sixth seed like the Phillies did and just get in and see what happens? That was the goal, uh, at least from the union's perspective, that was their hope if they were going to consent to a Major League Baseball water with this expanded postseason field was that it would drive spending. I hope that's the case. Early indications are that teams are going to really be throwing around money, um, but obviously there might be a back-end effect too with high payroll teams like the Dodgers and the Yankees saying, why are we going to spend so much if it's a crapshoot once we get into October? 60 seconds. Aaron Judge is going to be the big name, of course, this offseason. During the course of the offseason, um, you know, I've seen stories about the Dodgers maybe being involved. We know the Yankees are going to make a big run at him. Uh, we know that the Giants are going to make a run at him. My perception is, is that it really will come down to Giants versus Yankees. I feel like when the, when the Dodgers were mentioned, I thought, well, that's the Dodgers trying to drive up the price uh, for the Giants potentially. And that Andrew Friedman never pays sticker price on anything. What, uh, what did you hear about Aaron judge there? My sense is that the Dodgers are going to spend like that. Um, Like always, they would love a short term high AAV deal. I just don't know that this is the offseason where the Dodgers are going to spend on another big contract. They did it for Mookie Betts. They did it for Freddie Freeman. I get the sense that they just want their young players to matriculate this year and they're going to make more moves on the margins. They might prove me wrong and do something completely unexpected. They've done it before. That's my sense with them. My sense is that this is the time for the Giants to spend big. I think it's there for them. I'm not saying they're going to sign Aaron Judge. But I think they're very willing to throw their money around and to sign a star player this offseason. I mean, Farhan Zaidi said it. He said, I mean, I, I don't, GMs don't ever say this. He, he said, um, nobody's going to be able to outspend us, basically. You know, I'm paraphrasing here. But, um, you know, I think this is their time. And if it's not for Aaron Judge, maybe it's for one of those big shortstops. It would be fascinating if they threw a number like 360 or $400 million out there, what the reaction from the Yankees would be, given the fact that they valued Judge at $213.5 million, you know, six months ago. <laughs> that would be a fascinating, uh, fascinating negotiation, you know? And, and Buster, here's the thing. Whatever it is, I feel like the Yankees have to spend it. They have to bring him back. I don't know that they have an identity as a franchise right now. If they don't have Aaron Judge in their clubhouse, who do they spend that money on? If they don't get Aaron Judge, we know they need to upgrade the team. We know they don't need a shortstop because they have some great young shortstops coming up. Whatever the price is for Aaron Judge, they have to pay it. Yep, I agree. All right, Alden, good to talk with you. Good to see you. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Buster. Appreciate it. Bleacher Tweets. Alrighty, Buster. Bleacher Tweets on this glorious Wednesday is brought to you by Dr. Pepper. It ain't college football season without the delicious taste of an ice cold Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. Now, Michel at Tigers of Detroit writes in, does the looming automatic strike zone help the market for Wilson Contreras since framing will be obsolete soon? 
Mitchell, I, I think when it does come in, uh, let's face it, offensive catchers like Wilson Contreras, uh, you know, the Mets young catcher who's coming up as well as another guy who fits that, uh, it is going to be a factor. Like all these, you know, skills that have been refined through the years by catchers, they'll kind of go out the window, which is why I, I'm not totally confident that the automatic strike zone is automatically going to be in baseball sometime soon. Mm. Um, I think they could do it right now, but I wonder if there's going to be pushback from within the union because they understand that a lot of these guys who are major league catchers now, like their value will disappear immediately and that'll become an offensive position a lot like first bases. Adley Rutschman, one of those excellent framing catchers. Well, and he could, well, and you know what? He's such a good offensive catcher, and he's great with dealing with pitchers. I don't think it's going to matter. But that particular skill about framing pitches, like the value of that would be gone. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Martin Maldonado, who's so good at that, oh, yeah. gone. You know, I, I it is, and it is suddenly you're going to see a bunch of DH types, first base types are going to be playing, uh, playing catcher. Maybe some left-handed hitters, too, or left-handed throwers. Interesting. Dean at I am Dean Perry writes in watching the Braves all year. I got the vibe that Acuna isn't a great fit anymore. I wonder if the team would consider trading him, especially since the farm system has been depleted. Can you see that happening? Um, I don't think so. I mean, he had a down year and it was surprising. uh, I I think uh, because he's been so great in the past, but it was his first year after having major knee surgery and he was in and out of the lineup. There's some, some issues there. I do wonder after last year if, uh, you know, there's going to be conversations with him next year about just sort of staying within his game because it felt like in watching his game, like he expanded the strike zone, he'd get frustrated. You see his uh, level of disappointment. we got to remember, he's still a really young player. I, I mean, to me, he's a generational talent, so I'm not trading that guy. Definitely. Blade Bigler writes in, do you think Manfred was serious in your interview about making baseball more affordable and accessible via TV? How would he and Major League Baseball do this? Yeah, uh, I I mean, I I think he's serious. I think they are serious about trying to make the product better for viewers. But uh, I mean, let's face it, they would have to go through the owners and the owners have to would have to break some longstanding rules about rights and blackout (laughs) areas and that sort of thing. And there'd be a lot of work to make that happen. Longstanding uh, rules and feuds as well. I think that plays into it too. Yep. LGM at Neil underscore LGM writes in, I've always thought Carlos Delgado should have gotten a closer look for the Hall of Fame. Now I see the committee is considering Fred McGriff and Dale Murphy. Delgado was better than both of those players. Why is he not in the mix? I don't know if he's necessarily better. I do think as time goes on that uh, he'll get another, he'll get another look. I feel bad for the players who were sort of on the edge uh, of, of being in the top 10 during the when the steroid era candidates are passing through. Because let's face it, those guys get shoved off the ballots. Like they lost support literally because all these steroid era candidates, the Bonds, Clemens, McGuire, Sosa, they just kept on returning the ballot every year rather than graduating. And it hurt guys like Carlos Delgado. I agree with with LGM with what you're saying. Alrighty, that does it for Bleacher Tweets. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter between now and our ep- next episode. And uh, please subscribe or follow and th- is the proper terminology of this podcast wherever you're listening to your podcast and tell a friend as well. Thank you. Yeah, Taylor, take care of your voice, okay? It's bad. It's I mean, really you bad. get that voice back in order. I mean, uh, who knows? You might get a call at the last second asking you to step in and officiate again. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm open for business. I I, I will entertain you know business uh, proposals for uh, for a wedding ceremony. So let me know. Yeah. At CT uh, well, all pod listeners should know uh, Taylor can be bought. Okay? Oh, I'm easily that bought is. for sure. Very nice. Well, that's it for today. My thanks to Theo, to Sarah, to Alden, to Hembo, Sarah, Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.